Well, it's good to be with you again. Um, I was just reflecting uh, how this is like a church away, f- uh, a church home away from my normal church home. So I always feel very comfortable and excited to be here, and hopefully. <laughs> you'll feel the same, um, or at least be encouraged after the messages today the same way. Um, Before we open our Bibles, I just wanted to, kind of by way of illustration, talk about a a coming holiday. Um, Now, if you're doing your calendar math, um, you're probably thinking, well, the next holiday that's coming up is... Okay, someone said the right answer, but uh, did I hear the other answer? Just Father's Day, right? Father's Day is uh, a, a day of celebration coming up next, right? I didn't miss it, right? It, it didn't happen yet this month. All right. So uh, Mother's Day is a really big deal, but, you know, Father's Day tends to be kind of a quieter um, deal, but uh, at least just from my perspective. I'm, I'm teasing, but uh, we like to give honor to the ladies, and, and uh, Father's Day is a great day. Usually, you know, some barbecue, good food or something, right? Um, But that's not actually the holiday I was thinking of. It was actually what Bruce said, which I was thinking of 4th of July. Um, I don't know about what you experienced, but this last year has been really crazy, right? And one of the things that didn't really happen like normal last year was major fireworks, right? Um, Fireworks, I've often joked about how sometimes they put fireworks on TV and that's like, why do you even watch fireworks on TV? What's the point, right? It's kind of silly to watch it on TV. A, a huge part of fireworks is being there, experiencing them, right? Now, have any of you ever gone to see fireworks in an afternoon setting? Anyone? No? I don't know what your family traditions might be, or, uh, but wh- why don't we do that? Why don't we have the fireworks during the afternoon? You can't see it, right? The darkness is key to having good fireworks, right? It must be dark. Now, I'm sure you've experienced, like I have, whether it's these little fireworks displays in your own neighborhood or whatever. Some people get them started early, right? And before dark. But the best fireworks setting is when it's really dark. I I remember when I was a kid, we used to go over to this fireworks display on a nearby lake and we would walk over there we'd start walking maybe nine o'clock or so and go uh, about a mile or so down the road and and get over to the area by the lake and by the time we'd get there and they'd start the fireworks it would be pitch dark it would just be completely dark and then you could see the fireworks in their grand display and it was so beautiful In order to see fireworks, you need darkness. The darkness highlights the light. And there's actually a spiritual principle about that that we're going to look at today. Paul says in Philippians about the the church in Philippi that they shined as lights in the darkness of the crooked, with, with the crooked people around them and the people of that generation. They shined because of their holiness, their godliness. It was a complete contrast, and it stood out in a dark world. Well, 
We're going to talk about a dark world today. We're not going to look at Philippians. We're actually going to be in 2 Kings chapter 13. But as you're turning there, I think it's important to understand this backdrop of spiritual darkness highlights spiritual good. And the spiritual good that we're going to talk about today is God's compassion, God's faithfulness, God's goodness to deliver the nation of Israel from their enemies, from trouble, in spite of their own sinfulness and failure to serve God as they should. So we see this backdrop of the unfaithfulness of Israel, their own sin, and yet it highlights all the more God's goodness, God's faithfulness, in spite of their unfaithfulness. So we're going to read the whole chapter eventually, but let's start with verses 1 to 13, where we're going to see there that God is gracious to deliver the nation of Israel in response to one king's request. Oh, I'm sorry, we're going to read 1 through 9 first. Um, 1 through 9, where God is gracious to deliver them in response to one of the king's requests. So let's look at 1 through 9, where it says, in the 23rd year of Joash, the son of Ahaziah, king of Judah, Jehoahaz, the son of Jehu, became king over Israel at Samaria, and he reigned 17 years. He did evil in the sight of the Lord and followed the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, with which he made Israel sin. He did not turn from them. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he gave them continually into the hand of Hazel, king of Aram, or Syria, uh, and into the hand of Ben-Hadad, the son of Hazel. Then Je Jehoahaz entreated the favor of the Lord, and the Lord listened to him. For he saw the oppression of Israel, how the king of Aram oppressed them. The Lord gave Israel a deliverer, so that they escaped from under the hand of the Arameans, and the sons of Israel lived in their tents as formerly. Nevertheless, they did not turn away from the sins of the house of Jeroboam, with which he made Israel sin, but walked in them, and the Asherah also remained standing in Samaria. For he left to Jehoahaz of the army not more than fifty horsemen and ten chariots and ten thousand footmen, for the king of Aram had destroyed them and made them like the dust at threshing. Now the rest of the acts of Jehoahaz and all that he did and his might, are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Israel? And Jehoahaz slept with his fathers, and they buried him in Samaria, and Jehoahaz his son became king in his place. Now, I know in previous times... Uh, when I've been here, I've talked about 2 Kings. We've studied some 2 Kings stuff, and some of you may remember that. But in talking to Dan, he reminded me, you know, as every good pastor knows, um, we all forget, right? We all forget what we've talked about. So just to make sure, cover a couple background items in case they're not familiar. Um, we're talking here in the kingdom of Israel at this time about a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. So... Solomon was the king, and he had a son named Rehoboam, who was that young king who um, asked the old men what he should do, and then he asked the young men what he should do, and the young men were like, hey, be aggressive, and tell them that your pinky is going to be as heavy as your father's thigh, 
In other words, don't let up on them. Well, that resulted in a split of the northern and southern kingdoms, right? And Jeroboam was the king of the north. God gave him the ten tribes, and he became king of the north. But Jeroboam committed a horrific sin that the northern kingdom never departed from. And that is Jeroboam set up these two golden idols to worship, and these became uh, sort of the national religion of the north. So when you read here about the kingdom of the north, or it's also referred to as Samaria, that's the capital city of the north, um, they are committing the sins of Jeroboam. That is, they're committing idolatry. They have left the God of Israel, and they're worshiping idols. And so this king, Jehoahaz, that we're reading about, is just like all the other northern kings. He's continued that false worship. And the north never departs from that. So, again, as we talked about in the opening illustration, there's this backdrop in the northern kingdom of perpetual sin. They are repeatedly committing the sins of Jeroboam and never depart from that. And this king is also committed to those same kinds of things. Notice it says about him that he continued in those sins, right? In verse 2, it said, He did evil in the sight of the Lord and followed the sins of Jeroboam and with which he made Israel to sin. And he did not turn from them. So I think this is really important to understand because the text is making it clear there's nothing good in the northern kingdom that caused God to show kindness and compassion to them. I think the text repeatedly makes that clear that they're sinners, they're committed to their sin, and yet, in spite of that, God chooses, because of his own nature, to show kindness and compassion and to have pity on them. But it's not because they've earned that. It's not because they deserve it. It's because God is gracious and God is compassionate. He's merciful. They followed in the sins of Jeroboam. They're still committed to it. However, this one king of the north does something that I don't know we see in any other king of the north. Did you catch what he did in verse 4? What does this king of the north do? Yeah. He, he seeks the Lord's help. He, he entreats the favor of the Lord. He is looking for the Lord to provide deliverance because they're under the bondage of Syria. There's two different Syrian kings that it mentions that have power at this time and are repeatedly defeating Israel so much so that they've thinned out their army. Did you catch how many soldiers they had left? Verse 5 or 6 or 7? Yeah, verse 7. How many soldier, foot soldiers they have left? 10,000! Do you remember what the soldiers were like in, in years past? Hundreds of thousands. And now they're down to 10,000. There's been an incredible thinning out of the army. They cannot trust 
their army to provide them victory, right? So it's a desperate situation. So this king of the north, breaking from the normal of what the kings of the north do, he seeks God's help to deliver them. Now, notice in verse 5 what, what happens then. Verse 5, it says, The Lord gave Israel a deliverer, so that they escaped under the hands of the Arameans. The sons of Israel lived in their tents as formerly. That phrase just simply meaning they had peace. They had the ability to have their own places, their, their own place to live. They had peace. They, they weren't constantly on the run from the enemy during this little stretch. Because God raised up a deliverer. So we have this pattern of sin. This momentary seeking the Lord for some help. God sends a deliverer. However, notice verse 6. It's not that this resulted in a change behavior. And they're committed to purity and serving the Lord. Nope. Nevertheless, verse 6. They did not turn away from the sins of the house of Jeroboam with which he made Israel to sin, but walked in them. And the Asherah, which was another means of false worship, that stayed in the capital city. They didn't destroy that. Um, so they kept doing their false worship. They were still committed their sins. So clearly, God's choosing to deliver them based on his goodness, his mercy, his compassion for their suffering, not because of their goodness or their righteousness or that they're going to change, right? It's purely just God showing goodness. But notice this pattern of sin, seeking the Lord for a deliverer, getting a deliverer, and then right back in their sin. Does that remind you of anything? Any other Old Testament books? Where we see the cycle of sin, repentance, deliverer, what's that? Judges, that's right. The book of Judges. Do you remember what the people of Israel did towards the end of the, the Judges? They wanted a what? A king. Why? Because they're tired of these judges and they wanted to be like these other nations that had a king because the king could deliver them, right? Well, we have the same pattern all over again. The kings didn't change that. And I know we know the rest of the story, right? So we know that God really was their deliverer. He just used human beings, different human beings, to help them at the time, right? But God was ultimately their king, was ultimately their deliverer, and their rejection of the judge's model was actually a rejection of God himself. And we see, as patterned here throughout the whole book of Kings, kings are not perfect. In fact, who, who was one of the best kings ever? David. And yet, what did David do? David committed adultery and then committed murder to cover it up. Right? So even one of the best kings that ever lived for that nation still had a very egregious, sinful set of things that he did. So... This pattern is just like the judges. The kings aren't delivering them. Ultimately, it's God. And God, for a period here, gives them release from the bondage because he is 
compassionate. God is compassionate, so he gives them a temporary deliverance. So, let's look, though, at what happens in the life of the next king. So, we read in verse 9, this king basically dies and his son takes over. Now, admittedly, the naming here is a little confusing, right? If you look at verse 9, we see what happens there is Jehoahaz slept with his fathers and they buried him in Samaria, right? That's the northern kingdom. That's the, the capital city of the northern kingdom, Samaria. And Joash became king in his place. Now, that's confusing because if you're following the northern and southern kingdom here, who's the king of the south at this time? Joash. <laughs> so we have a Joash in the south and we have a Joash in the north. So it gets a little confusing. Now, one of the things that happens, especially with, well, I, I, maybe both northern and southern do this, but what you'll see also, as I think we'll see in verse 10, is that they have a long form of their name and a shortened form of their name. So if you look at verse 10, we see that Joash is also called Jehoash. So sometimes they take out that J-E-H-O, or, or they take out the E-H-O and just shorten it, right? So it's a little confusing. There's two Joashes, but typically the one in the north more, more commonly is going to be referred to as Jehoahash. All right, so when we read the next set of verses, just keep that in mind. So let, let's look at verses 10 to 13 where it's going to talk about the transition to Jehoahash as the second, as the next king um, after Jehoahash. It says, In the 37th year of Joash, king of Judah, Jehoahash, the son of Jehoahash, became king over Israel and Samaria and reigned 16 years. Was he a good king or a bad king? <laughs> he did evil in the sight of the Lord. He did not turn away from all the sins that Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, with which he made Israel sin, but walked in them. Now the rest of the acts of Joash, that's Jehoahash, the northern king, and all that he did in his might with which he fought against Amaziah, king of Judah, are they not written in the book of Chronicles of the kings of Israel? So Joash slept with his fathers, and Jeroboam sat on his throne, and Joash was buried in Samaria with the kings of Israel. All right, so there's this very brief introduction here to the second or the next king. Um, now, I, I jumped over something pretty quickly, but um, this king of the northern kingdom, Jehoahaz, that we were talking about, um, whose son was he? Did you catch that? We, we went over that really quickly. He's actually the son of Jehu. And if you're familiar with Jehu, he is the one that was the commander of the army of the north. And God sent a prophet. It's, it's kind of a, a somewhat humorous little story about how that all happened. But the prophet runs in to Jehu, anoints him to be king of Israel, and then runs away. <laughs> um, and then the people with Jehu at the time were like, what was all that about? That was kind of weird. Um, and Jehu's like, eh, you know, well, they're just, you know, he's, he says something to indicate 
it's kind of weird and I don't really believe what he's saying, but basically he tells his fellow companions there with him that the, that was a prophet who was announcing him to be the next king of Israel. So his men all quickly rally to him and agree that, hey, you're the next king. And so the job that God had given to Jehu was to wipe out the house of Ahab. He was a very wicked king in the north, um, was married to wicked queen Jezebel, if you remember. And we also have talked about they had a daughter, Athaliah, who was the wicked uh, queen mother in the south that tried to wipe out all the, all the heirs to the throne, except Joash was preserved and eventually became that king. So Ahab was wicked. And Jehu was given the command by God to wipe out the line of Ahab, which he aggressively did, maybe a little too aggressive in some ways, but he aggressively carried that out. And God said to Jehu, because of his faithfulness in carrying out that judgment against Ahab, that God was going to give Jehu a four-generation dynasty over the northern kingdom, which was unusual because usually it was one king from a different family and they'd wipe each other out, basically one after the other. But in the case of Jehu, his son, who we just talked about, Jehu Ahaz, became the king after him as the second in the line. And now the third in the line is Jehu Ahaz, Ahash, which we're uh, talking about now in verses 10 to 13. And then it tells us at the end that he dies and he has the fourth generation um, in the line of Jehu, which is Jeroboam the second. So, is there anything about this third king in the line, Jeho Ahash, that suggests to you he was a good or a bad king? I mean, it does say he's evil. Anything else about him that suggests he's committed to the sins of the northern kingdom? It's kind of a simple idea, but... There's a lot of information that we just talked through. Yeah, Jonathan? Okay. Um, that, that is arguably an evidence as well. That's not the one I was looking for, but you're right. He did fight with the South, and that's a problem. There's something a little more simple. What about his child? What do you call his child? Oh, he named that for the wicked. <laughs> he named him Jeroboam II. So, obviously, he's committed to the sins of Jeroboam, right? Um, so, you, you don't pick the name of your child for some notorious person, right? Who, nobody's naming their kid Hitler, right? I, I mean, to, to use an example. Um, so, he names his kid Jeroboam. Clearly, he's committed to the sins of the north. So, again, we're about to read about God delivering the northern kingdom again, but it's clearly not because these kings are committed to doing what's right. It's simply because God is gracious and kind to the nation of Israel. So, let's, let's read about Elisha. So, Elisha is talked about here, who had a ministry in the northern kingdom. Elisha is a prophet who followed Elijah... And Elijah and Elisha represent the remnant of believers who are, you might say, the true Israel. Those who really 
believe in the God of Israel and are seeking to follow and honor him. So these two men are the leaders of that remnant group. And Elisha is the second one, and he is now facing his death. Uh, but there is going to be a significant deliverance that takes place around that time. So let's read about that in verses 14, uh, 14 to 25 here. It says, When Elisha became sick with the illness with which he was to die, Joash, the king of Israel, came down to him and wept over him and said, My father, my father, the chariots of Israel and its horsemen. Elisha said to him, Take a bow and arrows. So he took a bow and arrows. Then he said to the king of Israel, Put your hand on the bow. And he put his hand on it. Then Elisha laid his hands on the king's hands. He said, Open the window toward the east. And he opened it. Then Elisha said, Shoot. And he shot. And he said, The Lord's arrow of victory, even the arrow of victory over Aram, for you will defeat the Arameans at Aphek until you have destroyed them. Then he said, Take the arrows. And he took them. And he said to the king of Israel, Strike the ground. And he struck it three times and stopped. So the man of God was angry with him and said, you should have struck the ground five or six times. Then you would have struck Aram until you would have destroyed it. But now you shall strike Aram only three times. Elisha died, and they buried him. Now the bands of the Moabites would invade the land in the spring of the year. As they were burying a man, behold, they saw a marauding band, and they cast the man into the grave of Elisha. And when the man touched the bones of Elisha, he revived and stood up on his feet. Now Hazel, king of Aram, had oppressed Israel all the days of Jehoahaz. But the Lord was gracious to them and had compassion on them and turned to them because of his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and would not destroy them or cast them from his presence until now. When Hazel, king of Aram, died, Ben-Hadad, his son, became king in his place. Then Jehoash the son of Jehoahaz took again from the hand of Ben-Hadad, the son of Hazel, the cities which he had taken in war from the hand of Jehoahaz, his father. Three times Joash defeated him and recovered the cities of Israel. All right, so we've been focused on two northern kings, and now we're focused on Elisha, who God uses to... Uh, communicate that there is going to be coming victory for the northern kingdom. So, um, we see here that Elisha is on his deathbed. He's about to die. And interestingly, the king of the north is concerned about that. In spite of his commitment to the sins of Jeroboam, he recognizes that Elisha is a very significant person in Israel. Uh, and it does seem interesting over the course of the ministry of Elisha versus Elijah. Elijah seemed to have more of a uh, combative relationship with the kings of the north. And yet Elisha, in a way, seems to have uh, more of a significant ministry in the north that isn't necessarily combative with the kings. He didn't in any way condone the sins of the the kings of the north, 
but God used him in a different way, and in some ways he had favor with some kings uh, different than Ahab uh, versus Elijah, and when, you know, Ahab really hated Elijah uh, because they didn't have that reign for three and a half years. You remember that? And then uh, he was seeking out Elijah to, to kill him, and, and yet um, then they get rain, and there's the whole Mount Carmel incident where the prophets of Baal are defeated. Um, but very different. Elisha has some respect from the king of the north. He is concerned about Elisha's death because that is significant to Israel. So as he comes to see Elisha, he gives them these tasks, which may not make perfect sense to us, and I can't explain every detail to you, but what, I, what we can talk about is the clear symbolism that is happening. Elisha is having him go through this exercise of taking the bow and arrow and shooting it, and this is symbolic of the victory that God's going to give to the northern kingdom. And he gets to the part where he's supposed to strike the ground, and he only strikes it three times, and the prophet is angry with him that he didn't strike it five or six, because that would have been a more complete or thorough victory for Israel. And, and we look at this story and we say, well, you know, he told him to strike the ground. How does he know, right? What? And we don't have all those answers, but I, I think we, we get the clear picture that it's a symbolic thing that he has to know that because... He's shooting the bow and arrow, and he says, hey, the, the arrow of victory. There's a clear indication that there's symbolism here and significance for future events. So instead of being aggressive and destroying the enemies of God's people, he is not as aggressive as he should be, um, and that ultimately is part of God's sovereign plan in that they're only going to get victory three times. Um, and we see that that's what happens. If we come down to verses 24 and 25, that's where we see this is fulfilled. And it talks about um, they have war, and at the end of verse 25, three times, Joash defeated him and recovered the cities of Israel. So, God fulfills this deliverance again for the northern kingdom in spite of, of their commitment to the sins of Jeroboam. This king did evil, as we read about in verses 10 to 13. He was committed to evil. He did evil. There was nothing um, that justified or earned God's deliverance. We don't even read in his case of him entreating the Lord's favor like the previous king did. But yet, our attention is drawn. Did you, did you see that verse when we read 14 to 20, 25? Did you see that key verse that kind of highlights the whole theme of the whole chapter that we've been talking about? It was right there towards the end, verse 23. Exactly. Let's go to verse 23. I, I think this verse is the key to this whole section that demonstrates this very principle that we've been talking about. The backdrop of the darkness of the time, the sinfulness of the nation of Israel, all the more highlights the glory of God. He is a loving and compassionate God, and, and one key element I realized I left out was 
he's faithful to his promises, right? It, it reminds us of that in verse 23. So let's look there. It says, But the Lord was gracious to them and had compassion on them and turned to them. Why? Because they were righteous? Because they prayed and fasted and begged God to help them? No, that's not what it says. Why? Because of his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and would not destroy them or cast them from his presence until now. See, the uh, huge theme of the book of Kings, it's written during the time of captivity. Because the nation of Israel is in captivity in Babylon, and probably many of them are asking, why would God abandon his people? Why would he allow his nation to be destroyed? What's going to happen with the promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? What's going to happen to the promises of David that there's going to be a king to rule on the throne forever? They're sitting in captivity asking those questions. And this book addresses those questions. Why did they end up in captivity? Because of their commitment to their sin and their refusal to repent from it in spite of God's repeated deliverance because of his goodness and faithfulness to uh, the covenant that he made with the nation. In spite of his goodness, his repeated deliverance of them, they were committed to their sin. And we also, again, know the rest of the story. So we know that God does send the ultimate deliverer and God is going to establish his son as the ultimate and final ruler of Israel on the earth and that's still future. So God is keeping his promises and God is faithful. But they have been completely unfaithful and yet God at repeated times like we see here delivers them in spite of their sinfulness. God is gracious and compassionate, and he repeatedly delivered them, but it was not because of their goodness or their righteousness. It was because of God's goodness. So, we can make a lot of parallels to our day as well. I, I don't know all of you, I, I can't see all of your hearts, but certainly the majority, if not all of us here, have in some way come to know the Lord or uh, made some profession to know the Lord, and, and yet we would all have to acknowledge there's a lot of times that we fail Him, right? There's a lot of ways in which we're not perfectly faithful, or He shows us goodness and not long after he shows us some special goodness and kindness to us, we do something that even spites that. We, we are sinners by nature. Now God is faithful and he will take care of his children and provide for his children. He does allow us to go through suffering and hardship. But he is faithful. We have to be careful to remember Though we may not be committed to the sins of Jeroboam, 
while, while we may not be going to worship a calf, we are still quite unfaithful at times, right? And God's goodness to us is not because we've earned it. It's not because we're so faithful. God is faithful. God is good. God is gracious. And we need to remember to give him thanks for his goodness and recognize we don't deserve it, right? The Bible tells us all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. There is none righteous, no, not one. We're all sinners, right? And even those of us who have come to know Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, there's still struggle, right? You read Romans 7. Paul talks about the struggle of his flesh and, and that he doesn't do the things he wants to do or he, he, does, he, does, he doesn't do the things he wants to do or he does things he doesn't want to do, right? This is a struggle of believers too. It's not just unbelievers that have that struggle, right? But God is gracious. So we count on God's graciousness and ask him to deliver because he is good, not because we deserve it. So I don't know about you, but sometimes in my own life, I may struggle with a particular sin pattern. And sometimes in my mind, I'm going to God, asking him to help me because I'm really trying. Right, God, I'm really trying, but I'm struggling with this. Please help me. Well, that's the wrong basis to be asking. The basis to ask is God's faithfulness, God's mercy, who God is, not, not who I am, unless I'm basing it on the fact that I'm a sinner and I need his help, right? We need to be careful not to have this mindset that we deserve God to do this. I, I look at the Apostle Paul. Do you, um, the Apostle Paul traveled around with uh, Timothy. And I remember as a college student being kind of struck by this passage where Paul talks about, I think, yeah, he travels with Timothy, but he's also working with Epaphras in Colossians, right? The guy, I'm getting my names mixed up, I'm sorry. Um, and, it, and Paul talks about in his letter to the church how this guy who has been serving the church and is serving the Lord and his burden for his church is on death's doorstep, right? And Paul says, but God had mercy on us and spared his life. And I remember one of the first times I read that and really thought about that, I, I thought, why, why would Paul see it as mercy? This guy is serving the Lord. Wouldn't, wouldn't it just be right for God to spare his life? Well, as I've grown in the Lord, I've come to understand, no, Paul had the right idea. None of us deserve anything from God, right? No matter how faithful we've been, we don't deserve things from God, right? What, what does Jesus say about this concept? He says, to his, he says to his disciples, after you have done everything you're supposed to do, say we are nothing but good or unprofitable servants, right? You're obligated to do good. We don't deserve God's goodness. It is based on his nature. So, 
we need to remember God is good and gracious. And maybe you are struggling with something and maybe um, you've given up hope because it's such a despair that you don't think you can get out of it and it's something that you know is your fault and therefore you hesitate to ask for God's help. We need God's help. He's the only one who can deliver us ultimately and we shouldn't be shameful in asking, right? We need his help. You're not going to get out of it because you deserve it. You get out of it because of the graciousness of God. Now, he may choose not to always deliver, right? There's a lot of examples in the Old Testament with the northern kingdom where they don't get out of trouble or the southern kingdom where they don't get out of trouble. But many times, God is graciously. It's up to his sovereign decision. But we should be praying and asking, not because we deserve it, but simply because God is good and gracious and he loves to answer prayer and he gets glory from delivering us because he is good and merciful. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we thank you so much that you are good and compassionate and gracious. We, we are sinners and, and Father, you know better than us. We tend to think pretty highly of ourselves at times, or we have a streak of things going pretty well for a while, and we tend to be pretty confident. But, Father, that's all our own foolishness as sinners. We are sinners who need your grace. We thank you for the grace and deliverance you've already given, but we need this every day, and it's only by your grace we can stand. Help us to remember that and to praise you for your faithfulness in spite of our unfaithfulness. And help us also, Father, to be burdened for those who don't know you, that they too might experience your goodness and your faithfulness. And we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. I guess that's time to be done, huh? <laughs>